This is a podcast from the Irish to the Rescue, the tercentenary of the Polish princess Clementina's escape. This seminar was organized on the occasion of the tercentenary of the rescue of the Polish princess Maria Clementina Sobieska from captivity in Innsbruck in April 1719 by a small group of Irish and French people in a most dramatic fashion. The event took place in Europe House in Dublin on the 30th of April 2019 and was generously sponsored by the Embassy of the Republic of Poland in Dublin, the Embassy of France in Ireland, the Alliance Francaise Dublin, Rathmines College of Further Education, the Technological University of Dublin and Dublin City Council. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Eamon O'Keara from University of Ulster. His paper was entitled Irish Jacobites in Early Modern Europe Exile, Adjustment and Experience 1691 to 1745 In the decades after the Glorious Revolution, thousands of English, Irish and Scottish Jacobites found themselves scattered across Europe. The Irish formed the bulk of this diverse exile community and played a major role in all aspects of Irish society or European society, including banking, the church, education, trade and particularly soldiering. Irish soldiers served, staffed and led in armies across the continent, flitting between kingdoms, empires, cultures, ideologies, languages and religion. Like other recruits, They joined for many reasons, some ideological and political, others practical and professional. They fled confessional, cultural and political persecution, escaping famine, economic stagnation and the drudgery of a labouring life. Others exchanged these for adventure and opportunity. Family ties, regional loyalty, tradition and chain military migration helped to sustain this extensive, successful and long-running Irish military diaspora. Furthermore, these exiles maintained strong cultural and ideological links with the land of their birth. They spoke Irish, they marched to Irish marathon music and the harp, red hand and crown emblazoned their flags. Their trials, tribulations and triumphs animated their compatriots at home and abroad and through these far-flung Irish communities. Finally, they utilised genealogy, lineage, religion and royalism to facilitate entry into and promotion within their chosen service. Others found that these often hampered or stifled a promising military career. Biographers, diarists and historians, Irish-language poets and Hiberno-Latin writers and Jacobite authors have both nurtured and recorded the emergence and spread of a distinct early modern Irish nationalist identity that had loyalty to the Catholic Church and the exiled dynasty at its core. In addition to articulating, articulating, celebrating and supplementing its attendant marital fighting Irish cult, Prickly Irish writers and commentators took great umbrage at British slander and French ingratitude. Sir Charles Wogan, the leading actor in this memorable event being celebrated at this conference, is one of the most articulate and prolific spokesmen for this diaspora. Often deemed traitors, rebels and fugitives, or at best military and religious refugees, 
these exiles played a significant role in European and political uh, and cultural life. Many, like Wogan, remained loyal to the exile dynasty and participated in military campaigns, invasion plots, cross-channel espionage and recruitment drives. Catholicism and Jacobitism, inexorably linked until the death of James III in 1766, helped to force hold this group together and facilitate its entry into European society and, while at once, enabling its adherents to move effortlessly from Madrid to Moscow. The disproportionately large influence of these exiles has been acknowledged by successive generations of Irish writers and scholars. Indeed, they should be considered a key component of what the Irish Jacobite writer Nicholas Plunkett called the Irish nation. On the authority of Irish poets, the exiles themselves and their Protestant, uh, Irish Protestant counterparts. Plunkett drew a cameo, a cameo of this absent but vital Irish political interest in his unpublished early 18th century pamphlet entitled The State of the Nation. He identified great numbers abroad and at home, though not la la enjoying lands or inheritance, yet are worthy patriots and highly capable of serving their country. He lavished praise on those Irish whom the world owns to be constant to the Catholic religion, constant for their loyalty to their prince, and noted for their national courage. This type of self-righteous rhetoric infuses hundreds of letters from Irish exiles in the Stuart Archive at Windsor Castle. Here at home, and even after the shipwreck of Ockram and Limerick, a displaced Irish Catholic, aristocratic and gentry interest remained preoccupied with Jacobite affairs on the continent, while a leaderless but seemingly unbowed peasantry made no secret of their affections for James II, his French ally Louis XIV, and their own exiled military and political elites. The latter became an army, aristocracy and gentry in waiting in both Jacobite and Whig writings, their numerical dominance often compensating for the relatively weak political position at the exile court. As a rebel prisoner, fugitive, agent, diplomat, soldier and statesman, Sir Charles Wogan, the Irish Don Quixote, personified the loyalty, romance and tenacity which often characterised the Irish Jacobite emigrant on a pan-European stage. This stretch from his native Kildare, as uh, Marion has just said, through the north of England to France, the Papal States, the Baltic, Russia and Spain. Sir Charles Edward, or Sir Char Edward Wogan, his kinsman, had saved Charles II after the Battle of Worcester in 1652, thereby copper-fastening the impeccable royalist credentials of a family that had served the English crown for nearly 500 years. Sir Charles would add luster to their glowing reputation by his travails on behalf of the Stuarts. At the tender age of 17, he had already forged strong links with the Northumberland Jacobite gentry. He later became actively involved, along with his 15-year-old brother Nicholas, 
in the 1715 rebellion. Despite his tender age, he commanded the 5th troop of the English Jacobite army in Northumberland and served as aide-de-camp to General uh, Thomas Foster. Imprisoned in Newgate after the Jacobite army surrender at Preston and transferred to Westminster Hall to be tried for high treason, Wogan escaped to France with a £500 bounty on his head. In 1718, he joined the Franco-Jacobite uh, regiment of his cousin, Lieutenant General Arthur Dillon, but he soon repaired to the papal state of Avignon, where he became a Jacobite agent. Later that year, he accompanied James Butler, 2nd Duke of Ormond, to Russia in an effort to forge an allegiance between Peter the Great and Charles XII of Sweden as a prelude to a Jacobite invasion um, of England against their common enemy, George I. Butler and Wogan also sought to negotiate a marriage between King James and Anna, Duchess of Courland, uh, niece of Tsar Peter and later Empress Anna of Russia. However, political expediency and fate hindered a union between the future empress and the stoical pretender. Presumably, Russia had had its share of false Dimitris, Ivans and Peters. Wogan's matchmaking finally took him to the Holy Roman Empire and to the residence of Jan Sobieski, son of Jan Sobieski III, warrior king of Poland, who had saved Vienna from the Turks in 1683. Our convener and other colleagues will speak to this colourful suit and audacious escape. Suffice to say that it confounded Europe, delighted his Jacobite contemporaries and enhanced the illustrious reputation of the Irish man abroad. Over the course of a long, chequered career, Wogan never wavered in his loyalty to the Stuarts. He regularly corresponded with King James III and retained an insatiable appetite for Jacobite intrigue. After an illustrious career in the Spanish military, Philip V of Spain rewarded him with the governorship of La Mancha, an appropriate accolade to one of the most famous knights in Europe. However, Wogan claimed that this distinction in no way eclipsed his affection for Ireland, where he should have a much better estate at home than he, Don Quixote's father, ever enjoyed, and a tomb too where no man of honour would be ashamed to lie. His preoccupation with his native land also remained a recurring theme in his prolific correspondence to his exile monarch. Moreover, he regularly vented his spleen against France for her ill-placed and ill-timed friendship with England and lamented the graves of 100,000 of our countrymen who died bravely without having been of any use in the cause that ultimately banished them. He is probably, as we shall see later, best remembered uh, in Irish history and letters for his voluminous correspondence with Jonathan Swift, Dean of St. Patrick's and author of Gulliver's Travels. 
After the publication of Swift's A Modest Proposal for Preventing the Children of the Poor of Poor People Being a Burden to Their Parents or Country and for Making Them Beneficial to the Public, Wogan sent samples of his English and Latin prose and verse to the Dean, asking him about the feasibility of having them published in Dublin. Swift reciprocated with editions of English authors, including Pope, Gray and Young. In subsequent missives to his new mentor, Wogan railed at English injustice against Ireland and French ingratitude for Irish military service to the country. I bet you're sorry you're sitting there. (laughs) (laughs) This correspondence sheds light on his patriotic emigrant mentality and resonates with pride at the achievements of the Irish abroad. However, it is tempered by his graphic description of the sufferings of the Irish at home and the ingratitude of European states for their sterling service. Indeed, his colourful, pained and pointed prose is worth quoting in full. Those Irish who have chosen a voluntary exile to get rid of oppression have given themselves up with great gaiety of spirit to the slaughter in foreign and ungrateful service to the number of above 120,000 men within these 40 years. The rest who have been content to stay at home are reduced to the wretched condition of Spartan helots. To return to our exiles, Mentor certainly does them that justice which cannot be denied them by those nations among whom they have served, but it is seldom or ever allowed them by those who write or speak English correctly. They have shown a great deal of gallantry in the defence of foreign states and princes with very little advantage to themselves but that of being free, and without half of the outward marks of distinction they deserve. The only fruit the Irish have reaped by their valour is their extinction and the general fame which they have lost themselves to accrue for their country. They have the honour of Ireland at heart which those who actually possessed their country were little affected with any other glory than that of England. Upon this account, the Irish were parcelled by brigades among the many armies entertained by the French king. The French never gained a victory to, who, who, to which those handfuls of Irish were not known to have contributed in a singular manner, nor lost a battle in which they did not preserve or rather augment the reputation by carrying off colours and standards from their victorious enemies. The Irish, for having been steady to their principles and not as cunning knaves as those neighbouring nations... Uh, have groaned during the last two centuries under all the weight of injustice, calumny and tyranny of which there is no example in equal circumstances to be shown in any history of the universe. Sounds a bit like a small monarch and farmer. Um, He also expressed characteristic forthright views on Irish history and the manner in which it was written by Englishmen particularly the Earl of Clarendon and those mongrel Irish historians from Richard Stanyhurst to William King. Finally, he blames endemic warfare, disunity and the prescription of Catholic schools for Ireland's inability to defend herself against her detractors. 
All this calumny has been sounded into the ears of all Europe by their enemies, both foreign and domestic, and thereby gain credit more or less on account of not having been sufficiently controverted or refuted at the time. Their constant misfortunes have given a sort of sanction to all of this imposture and iniquity. They could not defend themselves in the midst of so much division at home from so many powerful and confederated enemies. In the meantime, they are involved in too much war or in too much misery to be the relators of their own story with any advantage, or found the English language as backward as the English nation and government to do them justice. Their enemies have spared them the labour with a vengeance. The mongrel historians of the birth of Ireland, from whom Stanyhurst and Dr King, down to the most wretched scribbler, cannot afford them a good word in order to curry favour with England. In the meantime, it is impossible for an upright and good-natured spirit not to look with concern upon the inhuman slavery of the poor of Ireland. Since they have neither liberty nor schools allowed them, since their clergy, generally speaking, can have no learning but what they scramble for through the extremities of cold and hunger in the dirt and egotism of foreign universities, since all together are under the perpetual dread of persecution and have no security for the enjoyment of their lives or their religion. Swift finally managed to ascertain the identity of his anonymous correspondent and urged him to seek a publisher in London, possibly with a view to keeping this high-profile, attainted Jacobite at arm's length. He also sent him two editions of his own works, one of which the Chevalier immediately dispatched to James in Rome. In what amounted to a treasonable reply to Wogan's missum, Swift commented thus, Although I have no regard for your trade from the judgment I make of those who profess it in these kingdoms, yet I cannot but highly esteem those gentlemen of Ireland who with all the disadvantages of being exiles and strangers have been able to distinguish themselves by their valour and conduct in so many parts of Europe. In 1745, Wogan again spearheaded Jacobite attempts to induce the Spanish court to provide the necessary funds to support Bonnie Prince Charlie's invasion of Scotland. As part of the campaign, he published his memoir sur la entreprise de Innsbruck, his narrative of the rescue of Clementina, which he de dedicated to the Queen of France, herself a Polish princess and cousin of the late Stuart Queen. He later joined Henry, Duke of York, King James's younger son, at Madrid in the hope of re repairing to Scotland to join the 45. As part of the campaign, he also sent James a list of Irish officers in both Italy and Oran, uh, northwest Algeria, who would be happy to join Charles Edward in Scotland. He also reiterated his exile sentiments and his hope for a restoration of his king and a return to his native land. 
In a characteristically upbeat letter to James, he highlighted his own need for a disguise. Because I am attainted by an act of Parliament in England for almost 40 years, which renders me incapable as yet of my inheritance in Ireland. Reveling in Charles Edward's success in Scotland, he minded the stoical James of the prospect of a restoration to their respective birthrights and the satisfaction of seeing each other at home after so tedious and irksome a banishment. Wogan later experienced the agonised frustration of many Irish Jacobites in both France and Spain at the apparent unwillingness of the Bourbon kings, Louis XV and Philip V, to fully support the 45. And in conclusion, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, This expatriate Irish military community, of which Charles Wogan provides one of the most colourful and illustrious examples, left an indelible mark on the politics, political culture, literature and history of 18th century Ireland and Europe. In conjunction with their service to temporal and spiritual masters on the continent, James III, the second third, and the Pope, these exiles retained a strong sentimental uh, allegiance and attachment to their native land. Links between the Irish and her clerical and military exiles um, influenced the elaboration, maintenance, and survival of Jacobitism, a pan-European ideology. During wars and invasion plots, the exiles vigorously lobbied for, with, and on behalf of the Stuart kings. In periods of relative political activity, they commented on Irish politics, sought pensions, titles, and preferments, and continually dwelt on their exiled uh, land and the persecution of its indigenous population. Go to Kate Michael. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Irish to the Rescue, the tercentenary of the Polish Princess Clementina's escape. If you would like to listen back to more podcasts from the seminar, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts.